Okay, we're beginning here on the top of Kuvavim and Aleph by the two dots. The Mishnah makes a statement, Anything that is a destructive force, a destructive milacha, is patur. Tani Rabbi Abau, Kameh Rabbi Yochanan, Kol HaMikal Kalim Pturim, Chutz MiChovel Umavir. That statement is true about any other destructive milacha, except for Chovel, which is doing damage, injuring someone else. Umavir, and lighting fires, moving flames, incinerating things on Shabbat. Amalei, poke Tani the Baruch. That brighter that you just quoted, throw it out. Chovel, Umavir, Enam Mishnah. That what you just said, that Chovel and Mavir are the exceptions, is not really properly stated. It's not a real Mishnah. And if you want to say the brighter is a good brighter, You'll have to qualify the bright or explain it this way. Chovel b'tzarich lechalbo, mavir b'tzarich lefaro. What is the case that chovel is chayav? Chovel injuring somebody is chayav when he needs the blood to feed to his dog. Umavir is a case where he lit the fire to attain the ashes. He needed the ashes afterwards, and that's why he lit the fire. V'hanan t'nan. Didn't our Mishnah say, that anything that is destructive in nature is patur? My answer is, matanitin our Mishnah, Rabbi Huda, is authored by Rabbi Huda. Breita is authored by Rabbi Shimon. And the Breita is authored by Rabbi Shimon. The Mara here concludes that the difference between the Breita and the Mishnah is difference between the opinion of Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Shimon. The question is that we also have a difference in opinion here between Rabbi Bau and Rabbi Yochanan. Rabbi Bau believes that Chovel and Mavir do not have to have anything constructive associated with them, and you'd be chayav even if they were simply destructive. On the other hand, Rabbi Yochanan says, even Chovel and Mavir require some sort of constructive side to them in order to be chayav. What accounts for the difference in opinion between Rabbi Bau and Rabbi Yochanan? Rashi says, the Mishnah is authored by Rabbi Yehuda, who says, Malacha, she'ina tzricha gufa is chayav. Dafabiyu de makalka, hu eitzah malacha atzma. So even though the malacha itself, you are mikalkel, mitakin hu eitzah lacherim. For other things, or some other reason, or other individuals, it is considered to be a tikkun. And because of that, Rabbi Yehuda believes that that is called enough of a mitakin, and you are chayav. Therefore, you can come up with a case of chovel, where you are chayav, which is tzarich lekalbo, and mavir, where you're tzarich adayfaro. You said you have constructive purposes, you have a reason for it, even though it's not the primary reason that it was done for in the Mikdash, and it's not a direct derivative. You don't light fires to make ashes necessarily, you want to light the fire to use the fire, utilize the fire. You injure someone, not usually to get the blood, but to cause injury to the individuals. So nevertheless, because of Yudas of the opinion, shemlocha shentzrich gufa is chayav, therefore, he is the author of the Mishnah, whereas the Breita is authored by Rabbi Shimon. The Malach Hashem Tzricha the Gufa is Patura. So therefore, there's no such thing as Chovel Umavir, Sheinu Mikalkel. There is no case of Chovel Umavir where it's not a destructive force. Because Rabbi Shimon believes that anything that is constructive is outside of the Malacha. These Malachot, by definition, are Mikalkel. There is no way to make them into a constructive force, because the way that Rabbi Huda makes them into a constructive force is by saying that I'm going to utilize the blood that I took out for the dog. I'm going to take the outcome of the fire, which is the ashes, and that's why it is considered to be chayav or constructive. Rabbi Shimon doesn't view that as constructive because he believes is So he can never come up with a constructive form of these malachot. And therefore, can't have it be chayav, except in a destructive form. That's why Braita is authored by Rabbi Shimon. 
Rashi claims that the two things are connected. This issue of Mekalteo being Chayav and Patur, and the issue of Melacha She'en Tzricha Lagufa go hand in hand. And therefore, Rabbi Shimon, who believes Melacha She'en Tzricha Lagufa is Patur, will tell you that you cannot come up with a case by Chovelu Mavir that is constructive. There's just no way to get a case where you are constructive and Chayav. Therefore, the conclusion must be that Chovelu Mavir are Chayav no matter what, irrespective of what you're doing them for, because there is no manifestation of them in the positive or constructive form. Rabbi Yudah, on the other hand, who thinks that Malach HaShem Tzrikha Gufa is Chayav, then you have a possibility of the Malach of Chovelu Mavir being positive, being constructive, because even though they're not for what is the primary purpose of why you're doing this, never Nevertheless, you can come up with a constructive purpose, and then you'll be chayav in that case. And that's how Rashi explains, number one, the difference between Rabbi Yehuda as being the author of our Mishnah, and Rabbi Shimon being the author of the Brayta. But in addition, he uses that to explain the difference in opinion between Rabbi Bo and Rabbi Yochanan. Rabbi Bo, who's quoting this Brayta, is basically presenting the position of Rabbi Shimon. Rabbi Yochanan, who disagrees and says, poke down at the baras, holding like Rabbi Yehuda. He subscribes to Rabbi Yehuda's position. And therefore he says that Mishnah is no good, that you just quoted, and Rabbi Yehuda, you have to reread that Brayta to say that the case in the Brayta is a case where it is constructed. That's the way Rashi learns it. Rashi says the two are intertwined, and because of that, he also says the machok between Rabbi Ba and Rabbi Yochanan is basically Rabbi Ba is subscribing to Rabbi Shimon's opinion, Rabbi Yochanan is subscribing to Rabbi Yehuda's opinion. Tosafot does not like this at all. He says that, why do you have to correlate the two malakot? You can separate between, like you were just suggesting, David, separate between the issue of Mikalkel and Melachash and Tzrichah Gufa. Why do you have to intertwine the two? One of his main claims against Rashi is that Rabbi Yochanan over here says, poke Tani the Bara. Throw the Mishnah out, throw this Brayta out. Just because the Brayta is subscribing to Rabbi Shimon's opinion, and you hold like Rabbi Huda, why would you say throw the Brayta out? It's okay. So he disagrees. There's someone who disagrees. That's okay. We have many times in Shas where there's a Brayta that disagrees or someone disagrees. Why would he say throw the Brayta out if he really believed that that was authored by Rabbi Shimon, and he just subscribes to the opinion of Rabbi Huda. That's not a way to deal with it. It's a machloket. Okay, that's fine. But take Bogtani the Bara, he's not willing to say. So then, Al-Korkach Tosavot says that the machloket here between Rabbi Bill and Rabbi Yochanan, Alibad Rabbi Shimon Plige. They're arguing in the position of Rabbi Shimon, along the lines of what you were asking before, David. Not that they are arguing between Rabbi Shimon and Rabbi Huda, but rather in Rabbi Shimon they're arguing about how does Rabbi Shimon represent the case of Mikhail Kel? The Rabbi Bos of our Dechovelu Mavir Afopish Inutzarich Lekalbo Ule Ifaro Chayav. That in the case where you don't need it for anything, you're still Chayav. Because Rabbi Shimon, the Gomer Memilo Havarat Vatkoin, we're going to learn in a second what the source for Rabbi Shimon's position is. But he learns it out from the Psukim, and it's Xerata Katuv. Chovel Umavir is Chayav. Doesn't matter if you have any constructive purpose, doesn't matter anything about the outcome. If you do either one of these Malachot and Shabbat, you're Chayav. Not not because of any necessary illogical argument, but simply because the Torah says it. You're chayav. And there are no qualifications. There's no necessity to find constructive sides to it. You're chayav. That's Rabbi Bo's opinion. Rabbi Yochanan says, no. That you have to have some being constructive, something little that's constructive about it, Kagon. Tzarechle Kalbo, Udefaro. The Mila Bahavara, Yikatsat Tikun, we're gonna see in a second that Mila and Havara, which are the source for Rabbi Shimon, also have a little fix to them. Shetzarech Mitzvah. Avala Rabbi Huda, Filu Tzarechle Faro, Kalbo, Patur. The Ein Zet Tikun Chashu. The way Tosafa learns it is that Rabbi Huda would not agree with either statement here. Not the greatest statement of Rabbi Bo. 
and not the statement of Rabbi Yochanan. Rabbi Yehuda believes that you have to have a full-fledged constructive reason in order to be Chayav on Shabbat. And neither of these qualify. Rabbi Bali has nothing constructive about it. And Rabbi Yochanan comes up with this constructive purpose that's not really the purpose of burning. It's not really the purpose of doing Chavala, of injuring someone. But because it has something that's positive about it, that's enough according to Rabbi Shimon to make you Chayav. According to Rabbi Yehuda, he has a much higher threshold. Why doesn't Rabbi Yehuda think that that's enough? By Kovel Mavir, why doesn't he think it's enough? So Rabbi Nutam explains here that Mefarish Tahad the Choshiv Rabbi Yehuda Mikalkel Tzarech LeKalbova for all Lefish Ein Atikun Ba BeOto Sha'a doesn't happen simultaneously. Elo Achar Mikan the Achar Shasid Chabura Bahada Achar Shekalta Havara BaEifer. He says that the two are not connected. It's enough to say that yes, there is something positive. There is a positive outcome to being Chovel Mavir. So that's why Rabbi Shimon's Mikhayev. Rabbi Yehuda says I have a much higher threshold. My standard is that the constructive side of the Malacha must be a direct result of the Malacha. It cannot be an after effect or result of the Malacha. Over here, when you take out the blood to feed your dog, the Chavalah is done up front. The result of that Chavalah is now you get blood afterwards, after the fact. Burning the object is for the fire and for burning at that time. The result afterwards is that you end up with afer, you end up with ashes. And Rabbi Yudah says that's not sufficient to be considered constructive in this case. And then Tosafot here quotes, Korea amanat lifor, umochet amanat liftov. According to that explanation, what are you going to do with the malachot? Like tearing in order to stitch up. Mochet, erasing in order to write. To mechayiv l'kuli ama, everybody agrees. Those are listed in the Mishnah in Klal Gadol, and everybody agrees that those are chayav. Well, that just undermines what Rabbeinu Tam just suggested, which is you have to have the malacha and the tikkun happen simultaneously. That's not the case here. You're doing something for the end result, which is you're erasing in order that you can now write over that location. So then, Tosafot says over here, Afagav b'shatakilkul einu ba'tikun, hainu mishum, she'ashokilkul goreim tikun yoter tov. Levesov v'tikun gamurhu, sh'ari einu yachol asot tikun eli adeakilkul. Says because it's a prerequisite. It's a prerequisite, and it creates a tikun yoter tov. The end result is even better than the negative or destructive force that you're putting to work here. When you erase in order to write on there, the writing on there produces something that is even better than what you had before. Because the writing before wasn't useful to you. The new writing is certainly useful to you. Since you end up with a much better result afterwards, even though they're not simultaneous, that's enough to make you chayav. Even though it's a very, very uh, delicate distinction, because you could say the same thing by burning to get to ashes. The only way to get ashes is to burn something. You can't get there without burning ashes. And therefore, it should be the same thing. That's a prerequisite, and you're a better situation afterwards. Although Tosfos will argue that the burning itself is valuable, that you can cook something, you can heat something with it. So you don't have to say that in that case. But again, it's a delicate or fine line. So what you have here are, actually, according to Tosfos, you have different types of tikkun, different types of constructive purposes, and that will make a difference. You can have something that is completely not constructive, you can have something that is slightly constructive. Then you can have something that is constructive, but it doesn't happen at the same time. And then you can have something that's super constructive, which is that it, even though they don't happen at the same time, it overcomes the problem of not being simultaneous. And so what Tosafot is suggesting is that Rabbi Shimon says, it's enough to be slightly constructive in order to be chayav in these destructive melachot. That's enough. Rabbi Yehud has a much higher threshold, and he says it has to be really constructive. I mean, a full-fledged constructive purpose. And on top of that... 
Rabbeinu Tam suggests that it has to be something that's simultaneous. The constructive purpose has to be a part and parcel of the destructive force that you are unleashing. An exception to that are when you have something super constructive that will overcome the problem of not being simultaneous. And that way he differs from Rashi. Rashi assumes that Rabbi Bo was subscribing to Rabbi Shimon. Rabbi Yochanan is holding like Rabbi Yehuda. According to Tosafot, everybody is subscribing to Rabbi Shimon's opinion here. Rabbi Yehuda is a totally different issue. When the Gemara says, Matnit and Rabbi Yehuda and the Bright is Rabbi Shimon, the Bright is Rabbi Shimon according to everyone. The Bright is Rabbi Shimon according to Rabbi Bo and Rabbi Yochanan. The Mishnah is Rabbi Yehuda according to everyone. That difference between Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Shimon has no bearing on the Machok between Rabbi Bo and Rabbi Yochanan. As Rashi sees the machloket between Rabbi Abel and Rabbi Yochanan as being parallel to the machloket that we find between the Mishnah and the Brayta. And that's why Rabbi Yehuda is the author of the Mishnah, and that's why Rabbi Yochanan says, throw the Brayta out. And Rabbi Bo is subscribing to Rabbi Shimon, and that's why he quotes the Brayta in that form. Right, so now the Gemara continues and says, my time all the Rabbi Shimon. What's the reasoning behind Rabbi Shimon who says that destructive forces are chayav? So for the fact that you have to have a specific puzzle to tell you that you're allowed to do a Brit Milah on Shabbat, the implications from that, or what you would infer from that is, that Chovel is Asur on Shabbat. We need a specific pasuk which says that, Bayom Hashmini, Bayom Hashmini, Afilu Shabbat, that even the eighth day falls out, even on Shabbat, you're allowed to perform a Brit Milah. Why do I need a specific pasuk to tell me that you're allowed to do a Brit Milah on Shabbat? I would have known that because Chovel is not Asur. Chovel is a destructive force. A destructive force in Shabbat, we said, means We're only doing with an Iser Dir Abanan. I only an Iser Dir Abanan. I don't need a specific pasuk in the Torah to tell me that you're allowed to do a Brit Milah on Shabbat. It should have been a given. That doing a Brit Milah on Shabbat is considered to be Mutar. It's a Mikalkel. You're making a Chavalah. You're making a cut into somebody. The fact that the Torah comes out of its way to tell you that the cutting is Mutar on Shabbat tells you that Otherwise, it would have been Asur. So that's Rabbi Shimon's proof that the fact that it's Asur and the Torah has to become Tabatirit, that shows you that the Chovel Ba'alma is Chayav. In addition to that, the death penalty for a Bat Kohen who has an extramarital affair when she is in Arusa, the punishment for her is Sreifa. And Beitin cannot execute a Bat Kohen on Shabbat. Which means that the fact that it's impermissible to be Mavir, to make a fire, in order to create the molten lead that you need to put a bat coin to death, shows you that on Shabbat it's a sewer to be mavir, even though the mavir here is completely destructive in nature. You're only lighting the fire, you're only heating up the object to make it molten in order to put the bat coin to death. There's nothing constructive in what you're doing to make the lead molten in this case. It's simply now to be utilized in order to kill the bat coin. Nevertheless, the Torah says that it's a sur on Shabbat, and Beitim may not put her to death or execute her on Shabbat. That the fact that the Torah has to tell you that Havara by Abad Kohen is impermissible on Shabbat, so that tells you that Mavir in general is problematic on Shabbat. Now the Gemara says, What's Rabbi Yehuda going to do this? What's because here, there's also a tikkun, like Ravashi says. Ravashi, mali takin mila, mali takin kli. The difference between doing a mila, which is a tikkun, and fixing a kli. Mali levashel ptila, mali levashel smanim. What's the difference between lighting the lead, the molten lead that you're going to use to put to death the bat kohen? Mali levashel smanim. What's the difference between cooking smanim on Shabbat? I mean, that there is constructive purpose to all of these items. By mila, the 
individual after you do the milah is now a mahul. He no longer has an orla. So you've done something positive through the chabalah. So if that's the case, the structure which the Torah is saying that I need to be matir is a case where I have milah chovel, but constructive chovel. That constructive chovel I would have thought is a surah on Shabbat. That's why the Torah has to come to be matir according to Rabbi Yudha. By the Batkoin, I would have thought that the burning or the cooking of the tila of the molten lead, is something positive. So as you're not, as Rashi says, You're not ruining the lead, the molten lead. You are now making it better and you are purifying it. You are smelting the lead by heating it up. You're actually smelting the lead. So there is something positive to heating up the lead and making it into molten lead. So there is some positive side to it. Tosafot doesn't exactly like Rashi's explanation here in Mali the Vashel Butila, Mali the Vashel Smanim. Rather, he formulates it this way, which is just like cooking the dye in order to dye the cloth in the Mishkan was considered something constructive. So even though you're cooking up the dyes, which is quasi-destructive, nevertheless, because its ultimate purpose is to do something positive in dyeing a baguette, so do over here, when you cook the oferet, when you make the lead molten, even though that in itself might be destructive in the cooking process, it's not that you're making the lead better, nevertheless, the fact that you want it in the molten state in order to be soref, the bat kohen, that's enough to be classified as a positive or constructive form. Just like by bishul, when you do something that seems to be quasi-destructive, but makes whatever item you have there now have utility for you, you're cooking the dyes, so now that they can dye the baguette, so it's over here. If you're making the lead into molten lead so that you can perform sreifa, that should also be classified as a tikkun or something constructive. Because there's a positive side to it, therefore I would have thought a sur Shabbat. I would have thought there's a problem on Shabbat. Along comes the Torah to tell you, no, don't do it on Shabbat. In the end, Rabbi Shimon says, I have the Torah giving me specific instances where I have to say, yes, do milah on Shabbat. Do not kill a bat kohen on Shabbat. In fact, the Torah has to tell us in those specific times that that is the case, implies or indicates to us that otherwise, Chovel, which is by Milah, would have been a sword. That's why the Torah comes to be Matir. By Bat Kohen, the heating up, the Mavir of the molten lead. In fact, the Torah has to come and tell you, do not execute on Shabbat, means, therefore, the Torah is telling you that the Mavir, for the purpose of putting to death the Bat Kohen, is a sword. Even though the whole purpose of heating up the lead here is to kill someone, is to put them to death, which is a destructive purpose. And so it should have been mutar on Shabbat. The fact that the Torah comes down and says it's a sur, it tells you that it isn't mutar on Shabbat. You're not allowed to do this type of mavir on Shabbat. That is the reason Rabbi Shimon, in both cases, Rabbi Yudah says there is something constructive about it. By milah, the constructive purposes, you end up with someone who is mahul. By the aver, Rashi claims that the constructive side is that you're actually smelting the lead by heating it up. And so there's a positive side to the mavir over here. The Rambam Nechuva in Siman Shin Aleph says that the source for this argument between Rabbi Shem and Rabbi Yudah is not found in Shas. There is nowhere in Shas where we have an explicit bright or Mishnah that indicates this machloket in Mikalkel between Rabbi Shem and Rabbi Yudah. But we know that Rabbi Yehuda thinks the din is Mikalkel's Patur, and Rabbi Shimon thinks it is Chayav. If you look in the Mishnah Torah, it seems that the Rambam paskins like Rabbi Yehuda with regards to Melacha She'ain Tzricha Legufa, and in quasi-correlating those, 
he also paskins when it comes to destructive milachot, that if they are simply destructive, then you are patur. If they have any constructive side to them, then you are hayav. But the Rambam, in determining what is constructive, does something very interesting. He takes the Gemara that we spoke about yesterday, where the Gemara talked about the fact that when one rends the garments, rips their clothing out of anger, that that gives them some sort of cathartic emotional outlet, and therefore it is constructive, the Gemara seems to have rejected that and says after that, wait, that's not permissible because that's Kilo Oved Most of the Rishonim read that when it says Kilo Oved that the Gemara is rejecting that as being a Tikkun. That's no longer something that's considered constructive because of the destructive qualities of anger. On the other hand, it seems that the Rambam, according to the Magid Mishneh, read the Gemara otherwise. He said, the Gemara is saying, yes, it is a Tikkun when you do this, but it's not the proper conduct. It's not the proper way to act. So the Gemara is criticizing someone who does this, but it's not rejecting the underlying assumption that this is considered to be a tikkun. And therefore the Rambam writes in the 8th parak in Hilchot Shabbat, in Aloha Chet, and in the 10th parak in Aloha Yud, as well as in the 12th parak in the first Aloha, that if someone is angry and rends their garments, someone is angry in a fight with another person and then hits them and makes a chabura, or if someone tears kriya over their mate, all of these are an emotional release that has a tzad tikkun to them. And therefore, you would be chayav if you do them on Shabbat because they are not purely mikalkel. They have a tzad tikkun to them, like the way the Rambam we just said reads the Gemara, that the Gemara leaves this, that that type of emotional outlet or release is considered to be a tikkun, and you would be chayav for that on Shabbat because it is possibly a melachah she'en gufa. But the Rambam again paskins like Rabbi Huda, the melachah she'en gufa is chayav. But Ivan in all these places criticizes the Rambam's conclusion and says that this is not mitakein. The Gemara said that this is feeding into your Yitzhahara. That's not considered tikkun. And therefore, in all these cases, you are purely mikalkel. If you paskin like Rabbi Huda, you're going to be patur. If you paskin like Rabbi Shimon, then you would be chayav. Ivan calls all of this kozeh hevel ureut ruach. That which the Rambam is saying is incorrect, playing on this idea that the Rambam calls all of these things a tikkunim as a nachad ruach, the Ravid says that it's all hevel uru'ut ruach. Sir Malbain, someone who bleaches in the Mishnah, they made a whole list of items, and the Mishnah said, what is the shi'ur for those items in the Mishnah? Is k'malo sit kaful. It's a double sit. Yosef mechave kaful. Yosef said, what is a sit kaful? It says it's double of this. Double of this, which is double the space between your forefinger and your middle finger. So that's what it means, kaful, it's double. Rabbi Yechiyav Ami Mechavi Pashut. That it's simply this, which is the distance between your thumb and your forefinger. They're not arguing necessarily about the space of what sit kaful is. They're just arguing about what to measure it. Rabbi Yechiyav Ami says, you simply look at the distance between your thumb and your forefinger. And that gives you the sit kaful. That is a sit kaful. On the other hand, Rav Yosef says it's the distance between your forefinger and your middle finger multiplied by two, two times kaful. And if you do that, it should equal the distance between your thumb and your forefinger. It seems at least here that they are necessarily arguing about it. They're just indicating how they measured it. One of them showed that the measurement was between the thumb and the forefinger. And the other one showed it's the distance between the forefinger and the middle finger times two which should equal the distance between the thumb and the forefinger.
that's the way Rashi learns it, and that's why there may be no difference between these two positions of the Amoraim. Others having the girsa over here, instead of a fool, they have the word kafuf, meaning bent over. And the Rabbeinu Kananel says over here that Rabbi Yosef Mechavei kafuf, he showed it bent over. Mi'ikar agodel, from the base of the thumb, ad rosha etzpa, until the top of the pointer finger, kashen dvukot zubazu, when they're close together. And Rabbi Yosef Ba'ami Mechavei, he showed it pashut, which is mirosh godel, ad rosha etzpa, from the tip of the thumb, until the tip of the pointer finger, kashem pshutot, when they are separated. So based on their Beinu Hanano, then they really are arguing about what the size of this sikafuf is. Is it the distance between the thumb and the forefinger when they're together, the base of the thumb to the point of the forefinger? Or is it pashut, meaning that they're separated, and it's from the top of the thumb to the top of the pointer finger. So that would make it that they actually have a difference in opinion. The Tosfot read, I think, also has an opinion here that the measurement is between the forefinger and the middle finger, like we suggested over here. But the difference between them is that, is it pashut, just the simple distance between them when they are open, or is it when one of those two fingers is folded down? Then count the distance from the top of that finger that's folded to the finger that is upright, and that will give you a larger span. Again, over there, it seems like they would be arguing about what the definition of sitka full is. All right, next uh, mission is Rabbi Yudomer, Atzad Sipor the Migdal, someone who traps a bird in a tower, Utzvila Bayit, or a deer in the house, Chayav. Chamim Amrim, Sipor the Migdal, I agree with you. When you take a Sipor into a Migdal of some sort, into some sort of a tower or a cabinet, that's enough. But, Tzvi, a deer, the Ginal, Chatzer, Bivarim, Chayav. You don't have to bring it into the house. Even if you bring it into the garden, the courtyard, or to a Bivar, a grazing area, Chayav. Not all, all areas, fenced-in areas, are equal. If it's lacking being captured, then you're a patur. If it's captured, then you are a which the Gemal discussed what exactly that is. It's not autumn. We have a Mishnah over there. Mishnah in Beitzah that says, one may not take fish out of the water and you may not feed them as well on Yom Tov. So you have a fish pond. You can't go into this fish pond and grab out one of the fish from the fish pond in order to eat it on Yom Tov. Because that's considered to be Tzedah. In addition to that, you cannot feed those fish on Yom Tov. Ava, Tzadim Chayavov, Venotim Lifneim Mizonot. On the other hand, you can capture Kayan and Of, which are wild animals, non-domesticated animals and birds, and then you can feed them on Yom Tov. Piraminu. Is that really true? We brought a Tosefta that seems to disagree, which says, Bivarim shel chayot v'shel ofot v'shel dogim. You have these enclosures that have these chayot, ofot, and dogim in them. Ain't sadin be'em be'yom tov. You're not allowed to take the animals from there on Yom Tov to eat them. Be'en otim lifteim mizonot. And you may not feed them. So now you have a stira between the Mishnah and Beitzah. And the Tosefta in Beitzah, the Mishnah seems to indicate that you can eat the Chayan of on Yom Tov, and there it's in a Bivar. On the other hand, the Tosefta seems to say that you may not eat the Chayan of on Yom Tov. So how do we reconcile between these? So when it says, Kasha Chaya Chaya, so Chaya is a stira, and Kasha Ofot Alfot. When it says, Bishlam Chaya Chaya Lo Kasha, I can reconcile between the Chayan, the Mishnah, and the Chayan, the Tosefta, HaRabi Yehuda, HaRabanan. The difference between them is Rabbi Yehuda and the Rabbanan. Rabbi Yehuda says that a animal is not considered captured until it's inside the house. Chamim say that an animal that's out in the yard already is considered to be a captured animal. So since it's already captured, you cannot be in violation of the Melach of Tzedan Shabbat, because it's already captured. So the Chamim will be the authors of the Mishnah, who says you can eat the Chaya on Yom Tov. And Rabbi Yehuda will be the author of the Tosefta, who says you may not eat the Chaya on Yom Tov, because 
he says that it's not captured yet. You're actually doing the melach of tzedah then because it's not inside the house. What are you going to do about the birds? Because Rabbi Yudah and the Chachamim agree by birds that until it's in a migdal, it's not considered to be captured. And over here we're talking about birds in bivarim. We're talking about the birds in an aviary. That is, they're not fully captured. They're in an open area and they're not side of a migdal. So you can't say the difference between the Rabbi Yudah and the Chachamim. The difference is between whether this grazing area, this open area is roof or not roof, that would be the difference. My says, wait a minute, house is a roofed area. A bird in the house is not considered to be captured. A bird that's in the Migdal is considered to be captured. So we see that a roof is not what makes a difference in terms of a bird being considered or classified as captured. Over here we're dealing with a what we call a difficult bird. A bird that escapes. It's a free bird. All those expressions that they have with regards to birds, they leave. The birds are not easy to capture. They fly away from you no matter where they are. So unless you have them in a confined space, they're not going to be captured. So this seaport drawer, which is a bird that does not accept domestication, that's wild and it's very hard to domesticate. I mean, it's very hard to bring it into control. Even when you have it in control, it's difficult. So therefore... So it doesn't accept any authority, it doesn't accept domestication. Why is it called a free bird? It lives in the house like it lives in the field. I mean, just like in the field it's free and goes wherever it wants, so too in the house it goes wherever it wants. You cannot bring it under control. So that will be the explanation of the ofot and why the ofot are problematic in our Mishnah. But if you're dealing with a regular bird that can be domesticated, in Ochanami, if you brought it into a house, we would consider that to be captured. Now that we've reached this point, you can have the same thing with the wild animals. One of them, when you have the animals, you can also have that type of differentiation, which is one of them is in a bivargadol, a large enclosed area, a large corral, where that will not be considered seidah, because it can still run away from you and move away from you. Versus a bivargadol, we're dealing with a small enclosed area where the animal is considered or classified to be captured. So therefore, the tosefta that says you may not do it is talking about a bivargadol. The Mishnah Beitz that says you can do it is talking about a bivargadol. Hechidami bivargadol, hechidami bivargadol. How do you differentiate between a bivar gadol and katan? How do you know which is big and which is small? If anywhere you run, and if you can grab it in one lunge, in one step, that is considered to be a bivar katan. And the other would be a bivar gadol. It's interesting what the derivation of this word is. It's two possibilities. It can either be tchia, which would come from the word swimming, to float, and that could be the possibility of what the derivation of the word is, and that's what it means here, to float over, to just grab it in one shot, or it could be from the word hishtachavaya, which is shchia means to bend over, and to make one movement forward. The word here means to, to lunge or to jump forward, and you could parallel it with both hishtachavaya or with shchia. They both would have fit in the sense that the word is used over here. Right, the oral says the word here is spelled with a hey, and it says it's ritzachat it's a one step, and you don't have to rest, you don't have to stop at all. You can get it in one step's worth. Anywhere where the shadow of the walls falls across the other walls, or hits the other walls, that's considered to be a bivar katan. And otherwise, it's a bivar gadol. Tosafot over here notes that it has to be, that we're talking about a case where they knew there was a standard size of walls, 
and that they all had the same height, the walls, because otherwise, then this is not a meaningful type of explanation. And then, Inami, Eicha Daleka Ukse, Ukse, Biver Katan. It doesn't have corners where the animals can go hide and run away to. That's a Biver Katan. Idach, if they have areas where they can go hide and escape from you, that is called a bivar gadol. That's called, considered to be a large enclosed area. The difference between the chayah that we found in the Mishnah in Beitza, which says your ladder capture, that would be a bivar katan. Where it's a bivar gadol, that's what the Tosefta is being, where you name it, it may not capture it. And the same distinction we'll make by the bird, the bird will be, by the case where it's this type of bird that you cannot domesticate, you cannot bring it under control, that's what we're talking about in our Mishnah. Therefore, taking it into the house is not sufficient to be considered captured. The Mishnah Beitza is talking about a case where we're talking about a normal type of bird. That normal type of bird, there, if you bring it into the house, that will be enough to be considered captured. One thing here that's interesting is about feeding these animals. The Mishnah in Beitza says that, You may not take the fish out of the fish ponds, and you may not feed them. But you're allowed to take the chayayof, and therefore you're allowed to feed them. So Rashi says, what's the correlation between capture and food? So Rashi says, It's a question of muksa. If you're not allowed to be tzadim on Yom Tov, then they are in the classification of muksa. Because they're not in the world of Yom Tov for you. They're not in your world of Yom Tov, they're muksa. For muksa, we're not going to allow you to do tircha. Not allowed you exert yourself or make efforts on behalf of things that are muksa on Yom Tov. So that's why Rashi distinguishes, the same would be true by Shabbat, that says that if it's muksa, it's out of your world, then no feeding it. If it's within your world, within your purview, then you can feed it. Tosafot rejects that explanation or that distinction. He says, because one is allowed to put water in front of ducks, geese, and chickens, and in front of the pigeons, even though they're muksa on Shabbat. Nobody would say they're not muksa on Shabbat. You can't eat them on Shabbat. You can't do anything with them Shabbat. Yet, you're still allowed to feed them. Anything that is considered to be trapped already midoraita, then even though midorabanan, it's asur latsudoto, it's asur to capture them, nevertheless, you are then obligated to feed them because they are in your reshut. They're in your world. They're in your possession. Since they're in your possession, you're obligated or you permitted to feed them in those cases. But if Torah, they're not considered to be captured, then we cannot consider or say to you that the that you're obligated to feed them. If you're not obligated to feed them, you're not allowed to do that on Shabbat. Torah Sefot says the distinction is simple. Is it your responsibility or is it not your responsibility? How do we determine responsibility? That Torah tells you. If it's considered captured, it's your responsibility. You can feed them on Yom Tov or Shabbat. If they aren't captured, then you're not responsible for them. If you're not responsible, then you can't feed them on Shabbat and Yom Tov. That's what it says. That that's a simple distinction. And Muksa is not relevant over here. Muksa is a Dinder Abanan and doesn't necessarily have any impact on whether you can feed these animals or not. Just true today, that's Allah that animals can, are Muksa on Shabbat. Nevertheless, if they are domesticated animals that rely on you for their food, you are obligated to feed them on Shabbat, permitted and obligated to feed them on Shabbat. Someone owns a dog, so the dog itself is muksa on Shabbat. You cannot pick up the dog on Shabbat. Nevertheless, you still have to feed the dog on Shabbat. So now the Gemara continues. We had Rabbi Shimon Gamaliel in the Mishnah who says, 
are Shavim. I'm Rabbi Yosef. I'm Rabbi Yudah. I'm Rishma. Alocha like Rabbi Shimon Gamliel. The locha is like Rabbi Shimon Gamliel. I'm Rabbi Abaye. Alocha Michal de Plige. You say the locha is like Rabbi Shimon Gamliel. It sounds like the others argue. The Chachamim argue on him. What's the difference? You now know the halacha is like Rabbi Shimon Gamliel. Who cares who argues on him? Halacha is this way. I'm Rabbi Gemara Gemur is Murtaday. Says what? You make statements in the Gemara. It's like a song. It's like some melody that you have. If you make a statement, then it has implications. That if you say that Allah is like Rabbi Shimon Gamliel, and that has implications or inferences from it, that's important. We don't just make statements willy-nilly. Otherwise, you should have said Allah is like the Chachamim. You should have said, Ain Allah Yuda. There are other ways to formulate it. The fact that you formulated it this way indicates that there is some meaning to what you said. So now the Gemara says, If you capture a Tzvi that is blind or sleeping, when it's lame, has trouble walking, being mobile, is old or sick, patur. That case is not considered seida. Why are these two things different? It says, When it comes to a suma, a blind animal and a sleeping animal, they have an awareness. And therefore, they will try to escape. They will not let you just pick them up or take them. They have a sense that you're approaching them, and they will try to run away. On the other hand, the zakein, the chulein, the chiger, lacked the ability to run away, and therefore they're not mechusar tzeda. They're captured because they're just not going to run away from you. Mar says, Vatanyo, don't we have a brayta chulei chayav? You capture someone that's sick, you're chayav. That is an animal that's sick with fever. That animal is considered to be capturing, because he simply has fever, he'll still run away from you. The other one is sick because it's overtired. It's unable to move. So that animal won't run away from you. So that's already considered to be captured because it'll never run away from you. One who captures Chagavim or locust, Gazin, Rashi claims are kosher types of grasshoppers that can be eaten. Tzirin are wasps. Tushim are mosquitoes. On Shabbat is chayav. That's what Rabbi Meir says. Chol miyamim, kol shevim mino nitzol chayav. When people normally capture this item, then you're chayav. Chol shevim mino nitzol patur. If you don't normally capture these items, then you are patur. People don't normally capture these things, then there's no malach of tzad. Because you're capturing them is considered to be unusual, not the normal way that this malacha is performed. So if you are capturing things that are not normally captured or brought in for trapping, then you are considered to be unusual. And that's not the normal way the malacha is done. So over here, the ones that are eaten are normally captured. The ones that are not eaten are not captured. Tani Yidochev, another brayta said, Zad Chagavim Bishat HaTal Patur, Bishat HaShrav Chayav. You capture the locusts, the grasshoppers, during the time that there's dew out there, you're Patur. For whatever reason, the Tal, the dew gets into their eyes and blinds them. And therefore, they are easy prey, because they can't move away, they can't see what's going on. So over there, you're patur, because you're not doing any tzedah, they're not going anywhere. But Bishat HaShrav, in the time that it's dry, time that it's hot out, then you're chayav because they could escape. Someone to suggest here that the use of the word tal is in contrast to shrav means hot or dry. It said that the opposite is going to be the tal means the cold. If they are swarming and coming, then you're not chayav because there's so many of them. Just by putting your hand out, you're going to capture them. You don't have to do anything to get them. So now the Gemara wants to know, His disagreement when he says patur, is he saying that about the case of the summer, is he thinking about the case where there's the dew? So, Amr says, Tashma, Tzad Chagavim B'Shatatal, Patur. You capture Chagavim the time that they are blinded by the dew, you're Patur. B'Shatashrav Chayav. The time that it's dry out, the time that it's hot out, then you're Chayav. Even at the time that it's hot and dry out, 
If they were so many of them, they were swarming, and you just stick your hand and grab them, again, they're considered already captured, and therefore you would not be chayav in that case. Because the opposite is shrav here, which means heat. Right. right. Okay, that's interesting. Because. Uh-huh. Okay. okay. Yeah. All right, next Mishnah. He had a deer that ran into the house. And then one person went and either sat down there or locked the door. On the other hand, if two people sat in the doorway to close him in, to rim. Because that's the equivalent of Shnaim Shesua. Two people that did it. What one person could have done, now two people are doing. They're locking the Tzvi in by sitting or blocking the doorway. All you need is one person to block the doorway. Now you put two there. At Shnaim Shesua, you put Turim like the Shito of Rabbi Yehuda. Lo yechol If one of them cannot lock it up, v'nalo Shnaim. So then you need two people to fill it in. Chayavin. That's Chayav like the Shito of Rabbi Yehuda that we saw earlier in the Mesekta by Shnaim Shesua. Rabbi Shimon Poter. Shimon Poter liked the Shita Toh. He says, anytime two people do a malacha, you are patur no matter what. Amr Rabbi Yirmi Abav, Amr Mishmo, Hatzad Ari B'Shabbat, Enu Chayav, Ad Shechneseno Le'Gruzuki Shalom. If you trap a lion on Shabbat, you're not Chayav, you're not considered as if you've captured it, until basically you put it into its cage. Until you put it into the irons. Because a lion can overpower you. A lion can throw off whoever's captured him, unless he's really been put into a cage, put into somewhere where he cannot escape anymore. So it's not considered to be tzad. It's not considered to be captured until he's really captured, captured in a way that he cannot escape anymore. If just you have him by the collar, that's not considered to be captured by a lion because the lion will throw you off any second and that's not considered to be captured. Alright, we'll leave the uh, Mishnah for tomorrow because the Mishnah has a Rashbo and a Shiltik Borim on it which has major, major implications to Allah. So I don't want to spend more time on that uh, tomorrow.